So I watch a lot of movies, uh, which I think is probably obvious if you've listened to more than one episode of this podcast where I talk about how many movies I watch. But despite my love of a dark room and a large, beautiful face made huge and silvery, I have weeks that can only be described as um, all media bad. (laughs) Nothing sparks joy. I cannot fathom taking in a new plot or listening to characters noisily chattering which is not a super reasonable way to approach being in the world. So to try and break myself out of this, I'll often return to comforting things, like action films with lots of punching and light homoerotic tension, or watching Point Break for the 417th time, which is an action film with light homoerotic tension. Same difference, I guess. But I also often find myself reaching for horror movies in these moments. Something about a final girl screaming and stabbing her way out of a pit of despair really speaks to me. Who could possibly say why? Don't worry about it. (laughs) Uh, But horror can be a bit of a wild card. Uh, Sometimes a horror film can be both fantastic and so traumatizing you never want to watch it again. And sometimes it can be an irredeemable cliche that you barely make it through for all the eye rolling. Uh, But when it's good, God, it's really just mm, so good. (laughs) So as I was casting my mind around for what to write this week, I kept returning to the last thing I saw in the cinema. And like Russell Crowe, I'm here, ready to explain you my passions. (laughs) That is a niche pop cultural reference that I quote all the time and no one ever gets. You're welcome. (laughs) I'm Alex. This is Pop Culture Boner, the podcast edition. And today I'm thinking about Talk To Me. Sometimes a movie will happen that features so many of my interests that it's like the universe is staring directly at me and saying, here, have a little treat. So as soon as I saw a trailer filled with ratbag Australian teens and haunted objects, I knew I had to go and see Talk To Me. And look, I'll be honest, I wasn't really expecting all that much. My relationship with the horror genre is such that I can forgive a multitude of sins if it gets me good one time. I'm willing to sit through some absolute garbage if there's just one bit that's like so scary it makes my skin crawl. Um, So to say that the bar is on the floor is an understatement. But oh man, Talk To Me got me real good. I was creeped out, I was emotional. Uh, Plus it made me think about the idea of a horror renaissance and what that actually means. Uh, So we're going to talk a little bit about both. Join me as I remind myself that all media not, in fact, bad some media good. Uh, I'll try not to spoil too much because it's worth a watch, but let's get into it. The premise of Talk To Me is pretty simple. A group of ratbag teens have a hold of a hand that can channel the dead once the user takes the hand and says, talk to me and I let you in. You have to let go of the hand after 90 seconds or the entities get a little too overzealous and stick around which is implied to be a bad thing, but none of the teens ever bother to check exactly how bad. Uh, It's a pretty classic setup. Carefree youth accidentally harness the power of a cursed object to horrific effect. It's such well-trodden ground, it even forms the basis of the 2011 horror comedy Cabin in the Woods, where the youth in question are being stage-directed by unseen bureaucrats to a different haunted entities so that they can take up the mantle of their own doom and inadvertently sacrifice themselves to the old gods. If you're going over such well-worn ground that it's already got a decade-old Joss Whedon-led meta send-up, 
It's probably pretty easy to accidentally veer into the realms of forgettably average or even noticeably bad, Uh, so I was a little apprehensive that the film wouldn't deliver on what the trailer promised me. Plus, Talk To Me is the directorial debut of Australian YouTube duo Racka Racka, aka twins Danny and Michael Philippou. Now, these two have about 6 million subscribers to their channel, have steadily been growing since about 2013, and are connected to other big-name YouTubers that I'm sort of forced to be aware of tangentially by virtue of being online. I still had no idea who they were, (laughs) Uh, which says that either the internet is truly a vast and unknowable place, or, more likely, that I'm slowly edging closer to becoming Grandpa Simpson. I used to be with it. And then they changed what it was. Now what I'm with isn't it, and what's it seems weird and scary to me. And it'll happen to you. Uh, Anyway. (laughs) Uh, Their usual content is pretty horror-centric. It's clearly the thing that they're into, but it's also very YouTube-y. It has all the hallmarks of someone yelling, what's up, guys, into the camera, without actually having someone yell, what's up, guys, into the camera. Does that make sense? You know? Like, the vibe is loud dudes capturing silly stuff they do, but with the added special interest in making bags of blood explode on someone's chest. And I'm definitely not the target demographic for that type of content. I was too old for it to imprint on my little duckling brain as important, so I'll reserve my judgment. But given that there's such an intense divide between Hollywood productions and people who make their money being creative on the internet... It's kind of fascinating that they made a film that was not only picked up by indie darling distributors A24, but it was also really good. Talk To Me manages to hold a surprising emotional weight, given the simple premise. The film follows Mia, who's played brilliantly by Sophia Wilde, as she navigates her life after her mother's death. Uh, She can't bear being in the house with her father and his depression, and instead she spends her time with her friend Jade's family, including Jade's little brother Riley and her tough-as-nails mum Sue. Jade finds Mia's neediness off-putting in the way that only a teenager could find the reasonable needs of a grieving friend off-putting, but Sue and Riley clearly think of Mia as part of her family, and Jade is ultimately a nice girl, so they stick together. Against this backdrop, the girls are clued into a group chat where their peers are posting videos of themselves partying and microgrossing demonic possession. They don't think the videos are real, so they're not extremely concerned when Riley sneaks out with them to attend one of the parties. We get a little bit more context to Mia's standing in the social hierarchy of high school when the ringleader delinquent Haley pulls Jade aside and asks her why she brought Mia at all when she's so needy. Jade brushes her off, but when Haley and her offsider Joss bring out the hand, Mia eagerly volunteers to be the first to have a turn. After initially being frightened, she says, I let you in, and is instantly possessed. Her pupils go black, her smile becomes menacing and pointed, Whatever has possessed her really hones in on Riley in a way that feels particularly threatening. And when the 90 seconds are up, they struggle to break the connection and the time is exceeded by a few tense seconds. No one's truly bothered by this turn of events, though. Everyone just kind of keeps filming and posting to the group chat. And rather than being put out by this experience or the footage captured of her, Mia is enthralled by the feeling of taking her hands off the wheel and wants more. She badges Jade into hosting Haley, Joss, and the Hand at her place, which is when, behind his sister's back, Riley uses the Hand to disastrous effect, becoming possessed by something that sounds like Mia's mother. Mia allows him to stay possessed well over the 90 seconds so that she can converse with her mum, 
but Riley starts to smash his face into the table. As the group struggles to disentangle him from the hand, he proceeds to beat himself half to death and winds up in a coma. The rest of the movie bounces between Mia being visited by the increasingly disturbing vision of her mother and Riley regaining just enough consciousness to try and kill himself again as Mia apologises to her only friends over and over again. One of the things I really enjoy about horror movies is that the people who make the best ones are usually truly in love with the genre. They know it so intimately that they can subvert or lean into long-standing tropes to make something feel fresh and exciting. A truly delightful piece of the setup for Talk To Me was that not one single person ever tries to find out any more information on the backstory of the embalmed hand, allegedly from a powerful medium. Uh, It's covered in the scrawled names of every mongrel teenager who's had it in their possession previously, but at no point does someone go, maybe we should get some answers about why there's an embalmed hand going around our social circles. There's no moment of exposition where someone goes on the computer and types channeling the dead through psychic hand into a search bar. And when you really think about it, how many teens do you know who encounter a terrifying problem in the wild and go, I'm going to use my extensive capacity for reasoning and the powers of Google to solve this problem? (laughs) If you said anything other than none, you're a liar or you've never met a teenager. Uh, Anyway, there are five minutes where they do briefly seek out Cole, who's the brother of the previous owner of the hand, who we see viciously stabbed by his sibling in an attempted murder-suicide at the beginning of the film. But he's not really any help at all. He mostly just gives us a litany of insults about how Haley and Joss are bad friends for continuing to mainline demons for fun and frivolity. It's a really great subversion of the usual tropes and is also the most fantastically bored teenage thing ever committed to film. Consequences? What consequences? But Talk To Me does its best work in between bouts of violence, so when it's slowly and methodically building up this picture of the intense and all-consuming loneliness of grief. Mia is simultaneously so desperate for connection that she digs her claws into the people around her, and so isolated by her own pain that she can't acknowledge that those same people actually love her. Instead, she'd rather reach out to literally shake hands with the void and let herself become animated again by whatever she pulls out. There's a good chance that because I've said the word horror, you've already conjured up an image of a slasher film or something similar, but this is actually a surprisingly sensitive portrait of grieving for two loud Australian YouTube guys in their 30s. Interestingly, in an interview with Max Sear for Esquire magazine, Danny Philippou, who wrote the script for Talk To Me with Bill Hinsman, mentions that a lot of what he drew on as frightening for the film was actually just stuff he was afraid of himself. He references a near-fatal car accident when he was 16 where he didn't stop shaking until his older sister held his hand as the inspiration for the film's cursed object and the constant worry of hurting people around him and being consumed by depression as other fears. Where Michael Philippou is a qualified stuntman who seems to revel in a kind of chaotic physicality, Danny seems to be a little bit more thoughtful. He'd apparently taken a step back from their YouTube channel because he was feeling restricted by the expectations of their audience, who wanted a very exact formula from the twins. He says, I couldn't be as vulnerable on the YouTube stuff. I couldn't be as personal. It was always specific content for a specific audience. The stuff we liked watching was very different from the stuff that we were making. End quote. Which possibly explains how they ended up with something that's very clever filmmaking that balances the physical shock of a good horror movie with the emotional resonance of a great one. 
Talk to me has been a bit of a sleeper hit at the box office, making $55 million off a $5 million budget. Most of that has come from word of mouth, people who connected with the film, passing it on to their friends and loved ones. Given the success and how much I loved it, it's also made me think about the types of horror movies that are seeping over into the mainstream. I'm not going to call it a horror renaissance because if you Google the term horror renaissance, articles declaring that we're in the middle of one start popping up all the way back to 2010. If the internet's cultural commentators are to be believed, we've had a horror renaissance in the year 2000, 2011, 2018, 2019, 2021, and 2022, which I don't think is how that works, frankly. Um, (laughs) But I have noticed a certain quality in recent popular horror films that feels much more personal. I've definitely said this at least once every season of this podcast, but horror as a genre reflects our wider cultural anxieties back to us through the safe lens of a silly little plot and some campy little bloodbath scenes. And the monsters that are contained in each film are a stand-in for whatever's plaguing us. Aliens are about xenophobia, zombies are about a bunch of different things depending on when the film is made, and so on and so forth. When I look back at the classic horror canon, a lot of what's being dealt with thematically relates to national crises brought on by things beyond our control. Like, a lot of what drives the horror of 1974's Texas Chainsaw Massacre, for example, is about the long, slow collapse of the American dream, with Leatherface and his family being a literal inversion of the wholesome family unit, slowly being ground into the further stages of depravity by the crumbling American economy. The freeling suburban lifestyle is slowly made untenable by the ghosts of tragedies past in 1982's Poltergeist, which has similar anxieties about the safety of the American family unit. I'm just using two classic examples here, but you can see that the years are tracking against periods of serious upheaval for the US. In 1974, the stock market was crashing, Nixon was desperately trying to get inflation under control, people were still feeling the effects of the 1973 oil crisis, and the US were limping out of Vietnam, leaving a bunch of traumatized veterans and footage of war crimes in their wake. In 1982, America was in yet another recession and unemployment was at an all-time high. In both scenarios, the dream of the white picket-fenced house in the suburbs with 2.5 kids and no debt starts to become noticeably unattainable for those who previously might have gotten there. And you can see that underlying cultural anxiety manifested in both of these films. This feels slightly different to what I'm seeing in a lot of current horror success stories, including Talk To Me, which seem to take on this more personal or self-reflective aspect in their approach. Ari Aster's directorial debut, Hereditary, is about family trauma and grieving, even as a family torn apart by the death of a child eventually spins out into something that's more typically supernatural. His follow-up, Midsummer, touches on similar themes of grief, community and betrayal. Even tried-and-true horror franchises like Halloween have shifted their perspective slightly to look at the impact of intergenerational trauma on the family dynamic. Uh, As it turns out, years of being chased by an unkillable homicidal maniac will take a toll on your relationship with your daughter. Who knew? (laughs) And then in Talk To Me, the fear of loneliness and being misunderstood sort of tears through the screen. These are deeply personal fears about your relationship with yourself and those closest to you. And while it's not any more or less frightening than something that was worried about the impact Reaganomics would have on your ability to comfortably house your family in the suburbs, I think it does speak to a change in the way that we consider our own fear. 
Writing for horror website Bloody Disgusting, Ron Breton calls this genre grief horror, where, quote, the protagonists are toiling with their melancholy or malaise while simultaneously dealing with some external horror, end quote. He attributes the rise of the genre to a wave of filmmakers who grew up on immediate post-9-11 nihilistic horror, who've since come to find that this abrasive mode of creating is unsatisfying to them. Breton likens it to the actual stages of grief where someone acts in ways that are dangerous or brash out of shock and then comes to feel guilt over the actions from their heightened state. I think this is an interesting way of contextualizing the why of this genre, but I do also think it skips over the fact that as the decades worn on, we've become increasingly trapped with ourselves. In the digital sense, we've become unrelentingly contactable, and we're constantly reviewing our own performance through the lens of social media. And recently, in the physical sense, we've become locked in the house. I don't know if you guys heard, but there was this little global pandemic thing. Crazy. But we can't escape ourselves, and so we're kind of forced to reckon a little bit with the sadness that's kind of sitting at our core. And Talk To Me does it really beautifully. You can recognize the burning need for connection in yourself and then watch it slowly tear someone else apart. Well, uh, that's my little episode on Talk To Me. I love a spooky little film, and I love it even more when it features only the most feral Australian teenagers anyone could rustle up. What a treat! Uh, If you have some unresolved feelings about grief, the self, and um, fear, I guess, talk to me about it next time you see me at the pub. Peace! This episode of Pop Culture Burner was written and recorded by Alex Johnson and produced and edited by Wesley Fay. The theme song is also by Wesley. Check out popcultureburner.com for full episode notes and sources. We'd really appreciate if you could subscribe, rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts so more people can find us. Pop Culture Burner is produced on the stolen lands of the Wongal and Wurundjeri Woiwurrung peoples and we honour and respect them and all First Peoples as the traditional custodians of the lands we live and work on.